Hello, and welcome back to Murder to See with Anna. That's me. Yeah, I don't know how else to start this, but um, I'm finally in Minnesota. I'm finally going to get back into the groove of things and make more episodes as we go. Uh, if you, For those of you that don't know, I'm from California, and I just moved to Minnesota for my job. I'm just a barista, nothing special. So right now, I'm using my roommate's mic, David, love you because my mom shipped my mic to me because my dumbass forgot it when I was moving here and the little like USB import thing is dented dented bented same shit can I say s-h-i-t I have no idea we're gonna do it so yeah thanks David for letting me use your mic um today's episode is going to be about the I-80 conspiracy but before we get into that I want to start asking a question every episode on the philosophical side and try to get everyone's mind going and thinking just before we hit a bunch of murder and confusion and sadness and whatnot. So today's question is, can a person be happy if they have never experienced sadness? Just let it sit, think about it for a second. Sorry if you can hear my Keurig heating up. So can a person be happy if they've never experienced sadness? I would say no. Because if you have never felt sadness, you could confuse that with happiness. If all you ever feel is happy, then you will associate all other emotions with happiness. Even though sadness hurts, it is meant to be felt. Feeling all your emotions and distinguishing them from one another helps you understand every emotion you have. So when you feel happiness, it will be true happiness and not confused happiness. In psychology today, they said without sadness, happiness has no meaning. Ironically, the fear of emotional sadness often restricts a person's ability to experience the high heights of happiness. Many people live their entire lives in the middle zone. They do not experience extreme happiness, nor do they experience extreme sadness. I would say I am most likely not in the middle zone. I feel like I've experienced both extreme happiness and sadness. What about you? You can let me know on my website. I have a contact form where we can chat. I will email you back and whatnot. Um, I will have a Patreon coming soon and all of that beautiful jazz. A quick little story I guess I would like to talk about is I go to this dog park here and it's absolutely gorgeous. It's off leash and it's just acres of just forest area that they can just roam around. And I brought my Chuck It with me. If you don't know what Chuck It is, it's just a little ball launcher. So you can like scoop the ball off the ground so you don't have to touch it and you can throw it pretty far. And so my dog doesn't necessarily bring it back to me. He'll bring it like a few feet away from me and then it'll just roll on the floor. But he just likes to chase after it and grab it and then drop it. So I threw the ball. He chased it. He grabbed it and then he dropped it. And then it fell on the the side of this mountain. Or yeah, the way I had to do it was I had to. And keep in mind, it, there's a bunch of snow. It's super icy, super slippery. I have probably fell a thousand times since I've been here. I actually cracked my iPad from falling down in the snow. Uh, Very heartbreaking, but it's okay. We're still good. So it's on the side of this mountain, right? I have to go all the way around and slide down as if I was like surfing in the snow, just sliding down all the way down. It It was some parkour, I would have to say, just trying to trudge through this foot of snow getting up the side of the mountain so carefully because I kept sliding down I was just I was so close to getting the ball so many times 
and I just kept sliding down and falling. I'm so glad no one was around to see it. No one was really there. Um, long story short, I got the ball. Did I really need to? Probably not, but honestly, I was really bored and I had nothing else to look forward to. So that was that was my great thing of the day. Nonetheless, I would say I'm adjusting to the winter pretty well. I have like those thermals that you put under your regular clothes and I have been toasty warm outside. I got a nice big fur coat. We're, we're all right. We're not doing too bad. Let's get into the conspiracy. So as my show pertains or portrays whatnot, uh, conspiracy and murder sometimes go hand in hand. And this theory, let me, let me just tell you about it. So the I-80 or the Interstate 80 goes from San Francisco, California to Teaneck, New Jersey. It's a long, long freeway and it is it goes through the most lifeless unforgiving areas i actually had to drive on this interstate to get to minnesota i drove through it from utah to wyoming and it is desolate middle of nowhere deserted horror i would not drive it at night especially if you are alone you could literally go over 50 miles and would not see a gas station not even a house nothing it's just desert well mountains and whatnot there's also like a lot of roads that you see go off-road and it just keeps going on into the distance it you can't even see where it goes to creeps me out i also went through a small town in wyoming i think it was called aurora but the population literally said five five people and i saw one of them riding out with their horses really cute i also had to get gas so i stopped in a different little town and it was just like those trailer home kind of things but that's all there was was that and like the little gas station and then the gas station wasn't even open there would look like like nobody lived there it creeped me out so bad and it's like winter time i'm on the i-80 i already know the history about it and I'm, there's like not a lot of cars passing by and when i was trying to use my debit card on the first machine i went to it would just not work i don't know what was going on and so how i found it was closed was i was going to go inside and then it was closed until like january 6 and i was like what the hell dude i guess like no one re- i don't know anyways sorry if you can hear baxter so I eventually just pulled up into the pump in front of me. It worked. And then I went on my way out of Wyoming. So also, uh, when I was driving through Utah and going to for Wyoming first, I had to stop and get a hotel because it's getting dark. And it's just me and my dog that's traveling. I really didn't want to stop next to this freeway, but I had to. You do what you got to do, right? So I got this motel and guess what? I'm in the back of the hotel because the like little pet area was right outside my door, but still. And then when I was, he told me that because it was the winter time, they had these like weather strips around the door. And I was like, okay, sure, whatever. I don't know what that means. And so I go to the door. There was only one doorknob and you know how at most hotels it has like that little latch thing so like there's that little thing that sticks out on 
one part of the door and then on the right side that's in like the hotel area it's not on the door you like put that over so when you open the door it only like cracks open a little bit because the thing is like blocking it from opening it further well this just had one doorknob and uh there was nothing on the back of the doorknob inside the room just you just opened it with the key in the front and that was it and there was no uh little peephole either but i had a big window right next to the door but still and the little weather strip he was talking about it was at the part where the door was inside of the room and at the bottom and like it didn't even really shut the door all the way so um i was freaked out i freaked myself out <laughs> luckily i had my dog and he loves me and he was laying next to the door and he would always bark or look out the window when he heard a noise didn't get much sleep that night but hey we're here nonetheless it was a nice day Nothing happened, I'm just paranoid, but you know, it is what it is. So back to the I-80. It got the nickname The Big Lonely, and there has been a string of unsolved murders and disappearances. Some speculate there's a serial killer or killers. Our first case is the vanishing of Nan Dixon. On heathermonroe.medium.com, Nan Dixon has been missing for 40 years. Nancy, Nan, Cecilia Dixon was born August 4th, 1905 in Charlottesville City, Virginia. She was the oldest of nine children. Nan was a petite woman standing at four feet, 10 inches tall. Her family describes her as a strong and lively person, even at 72 years of age. She made her home in Grass Valley, California. She knew how to drive, but mostly avoided it if she could. Nan was feeling lonely in her old age and would ask her brother why he didn't come and visit her. So in 1961, Nan's brother Harry and his wife Lula were leasing property in Seven, Seven Trows, Nevada. Sorry if I'm saying that wrong. There were only a few residents left in the wildly remote mining community. Harry and his brother Dan planned to open a gold mining operation and asked other siblings for money to fund the business. Nan graciously loaned $6,000 and nothing came of the mine and no one paid her back. This, of course, caused some drama in the family, so Nan and Harry didn't speak until their brother Paul's funeral in 1976. After seven years of arguing, the debt was forgiven to keep the peace. About a year later, Nan made plans to visit her brother in the remote town of Seven Trials, Nevada. She begged her husband to go, but he didn't want to, and her friend Martha would have joined Nan, but Martha had other plans. On September 21st, 1978, the day before my birthday, Nan tossed a tote full of clothes, a hand-drawn map, and her husband's 22 handgun into her lime green 1976 Datsun B210 sedan and made the trip alone. Well, almost. It was only a three-hour drive. Even though Nan doesn't like driving, it was a small price to pay to see her brother. Nan stopped in Boomtown, Nevada to have dinner. After she went to Texaco gas station and got $4.18 worth of gas. Back then, I don't even know how much gas cost, but wow. A girl can dream. She got gas in Lovelock, Nevada, and then she vanished into thin air. It wasn't long before her family realized she was missing, and her family, as well as the Nevada police, scoured the desert but couldn't find any trace of Nan. Rumors of foul play or suicide were floating around, but there was no leads. Either way, Nan was missing. Four years passed without any leads until on a crisp Thanksgiving morning in 1982, Coyote hunters discovered Nan's car on an un 
used area of the Eagle Pitcher mining property. The car was rusted and infested with pack rats. The car had a half a tank of gas in it along with scuffed tires and a burnt out clutch, indicating that the driver veered off the road into the ditch and became stuck. So let's take a second to imagine being Nan. We hate driving. So many cars. So many dumb drivers. You know. We really miss our brother, who lives only three hours away. That's, what, the length of The Shining movie, which I still haven't seen? It's not too bad, and not too far. Maybe we can get someone to go with us, then it really wouldn't be too bad. It may be fun. We ask our husband, who for the love of God won't go with us. Then we ask a friend, but she has other obligations. So we toughen it up, and we go by ourselves. It could be fun nonetheless, and quite an experience. We pack up our clothes, a map, and a gun, just in case, since we are women and we'll be alone. You never know. Along the drive, we decide to stop for dinner. I mean, a girl got to eat, you know? Boomtown Nevada sound kind of funny and nice. We sit, we eat, then we get some gas before heading further. Then before you know it, the last place we were seen was in a gas station in Lovelock, Nevada, and no one will ever know what happened. That's, can you just imagine that? Like, that is just heartbreaking. And for 40 years, that's just, that's insane. The law enforcement found several pieces of evidence that they believed were signs of foul play. A single strand of gray hair found on the steering wheel had what officers assumed was human tissue on it, along with a roll and a single length of electrical tape. What seems to be stains on the trunk liner and tire rim that investigators assumed were blood. Diet Cola bottles and empty cartons of cigarettes that were not Nan's brand were outside the car. As far as Parishing County's sheriffs were concerned, the missing person's case was shaping up to either be suicide or homicide. Nan's remains never turned up despite extensive search and investigation. There are no suspects in the Dan Nixon case, and her car was auctioned off, and evidence recovered by the police was lost. As always, right? The freeway exit of Pumpernickel, which is a hilarious name for an exit, but also tragic since the next two victims disappeared at this exit and still have yet to be found. On April 13th, 2011, for all my 2000 babies, we were only 11, dude. Patrick Carnes, a sweet 86-year-old World War II veteran and his 100-pound Akita mix dog were headed towards Reno, Nevada. Nevada? Wow. Reno, Nevada. He was heading home after visiting family in Ohio and was on the last leg of a 2,000-mile journey. He had only 350 miles left to get to his home in Reno. It was around 9 p.m. when Nevada Highway Patrol trooper issued Patrick a warning for the lane change violation. Patrick failed to change lanes while passing a parked police cruiser. His excuse was that he was following a big rig only because it was going to Elko, which was less than 300 miles away from Reno. About a four-hour drive, which isn't bad. About nine hours later, and 150 miles away from Patrick's home, his green station wagon was spotted at a roll off ramp outside of Winnicoma, Pumpernickel Valley Exit 205. There were no signs of foul play and no occupants visible. The 2005 Subaru Forester looked abandoned. Police kept an eye on it, and after being in the same spot for 48 hours, they opened an investigation. Patrick and his dog never returned to the vehicle. They seemed to have vanished into the arid wasteland. There wasn't much evidence. The car was found in perfect condition, they couldn't get fingerprints from the car, and Patrick's possessions were still there. He also left a map where he planned his road trip and the rest stops. Exit 205 was not marked as one of them. 
Although Patrick was heading west towards his home in Reno, his car was on the opposite side of the highway heading east. Five years earlier, on February 14, 2006, love was in the air, but some were suffocated by it. In Cold Springs, Nevada, Judith Casadilla left her husband. The 62-year-old hit the road, although her planned destination is unknown. She may have intended to travel to Oregon to visit family. The last sighting of Judith was at a McDonald's in Lovelock, about 100 miles away from her home. Three weeks later, her white 1991 Mazda truck was found at, you guessed it, exit 205. Her truck was in perfect condition, and the scene lacked signs of homicidal evidence. Her disappearance received little media coverage, and it was believed that she had either walked away to start a new life or wandered in the desert to end her pain. So what's really obviously suspicious about these two is that they were both found at the same exit. I mean, it was five years apart, but still. And then with Patrick, like, he was so close to being home, to getting there, and then he just, what, vanished out of thin air? I know some people speculate that the semi-truck driver that he was following may have been at fault, maybe killed them. Nobody knows, obviously. And also the fact that their cars were found in perfect condition and there's just no evidence, no trace of them. That's just so suspicious and so crazy. How not even fingerprints and his dog, like, how do you not find the dog? The dog is always wandering or something, right? I don't know. Now, this story I found on Reddit really made me want to do an episode about this. This is someone's personal horrific story about how her friend disappeared while they traveled on the I-80. It comes from the user Darth Farda, and it was from two years ago. When I read it, like, my heart kind of sank because just try to put yourself in your- in their shoes during the situation so this is how it starts before you call bullshit at very least something is causing people to disappear along the desolate stretches of i-80 and i need to share an encounter i had that might confirm this theory is true for privacy and security reasons all names have been changed or removed here goes nothing my brother luke and i were driving from salt lake city to reno for the hell of it he just graduated high school and i was home from college in colorado Our dad had given us a couple hundred bucks and told us to go have fun. Here's the thing. Luke's a good kid, but he had been deeply depressed ever since our mom passed. He wanted to get out of town, see some stars, contemplate life, the universe. You know, everything in the wide expanse of the desert. And when he asked me to come with him, I happily obliged. Luke was really into that outrun vaporwave scene, so I suggested that we played like we were in the 80s for the ride out, and he enthusiastically agreed. I packed up our dad's old 1989 Jeep Wrangler, and Luke brought a bunch of paper maps and cassette tape. We silenced our phones, high-fived, and took off a couple hours before the sun went down with the intention of driving through the night. I know a lot of people, especially if you're driving through a desert, they tend to drive at night, especially in the summer as well, because it's really hot during the day. And obviously at night, it's just really cold, which is more preferable for some people. We weren't afraid and figured it would be relatively safe. I mean... You know, they're going with a buddy. They should be, all right? Especially, you know, there's a guy. I mean, girls can do anything. What am I talking about? We thought leaving at night was a good idea. We thought we'd skip the heat and the other cars and the stress. That was our first mistake. Three strikes and you're out. And everything comes in threes, by the way. We made it two hours into the desert with no problems, traveling down I-80 at a smooth 85 miles per hour. Luke seemed to be enjoying himself. The music was turned up and the windows were rolled down. 
Above the stars were just starting to come out and the sun sank, blood red, into the west. We stopped for food at a little cafe in a town called West Wendover. We both got the poncho special and dug in, leaving about an hour later. By this time, it was starting to get dark, real dark, and the Wranglers' brights barely lit up the deep shadow around us. Clouds had swept in, covering any light from the sky, making the desert seem claustrophobic and spooky. Luke joked that it would be perfect setting for a slasher flick. I laughed and told him to shut up. We stopped in Carlin for gas. The station we pulled into wasn't run down or sketchy or worrisome. In fact, it was lit by bright fluorescent and a few semi-trucks were parked off to the side. Luke asked me if he thought they were in there banging hookers. I rolled my eyes and went inside to pay and use the bathroom, asking him if he wanted anything, snacks, coffee, things like that. He declined, said he didn't need to pee, and decided to stay outside with the Wrangler. By the time I got back, I knew something was wrong. Luke was quiet. He seemed spooked. You okay? I asked him, hopping into the Wrangler. He simply shook his head. His eyes were watery, and I wondered if he'd been crying. You sure? We can turn back. Hey, it's okay. Don't be sad, okay? I'm here for you. I'm always here for you. I won't be mad if you want to go back. Luke sighed and finally said, That guy. What guy? I looked around us. The station was still empty, with the exception of a few trucks parked off to the side. He inhaled, then exhaled. While you were in there, this guy came up to me and told me I'm going to die tonight. What the hell? Seriously? Where'd he go? Luke shrugged. Do you want to stay here for the night? Should I call the cops? Tell the gas dude? Luke shook his head. No, no, no. It's okay. Probably just fucking with me. What'd he look like? Again, Luke just shrugged. Normal. Maybe in his 30s or 40s. I don't know. Forget it. Okay, well, did he have a car? No, he walked up, pounded on the window, said that, then walked away. Where? Luke gestured with his head towards the only entrance to the gas station. That way. Turned right. East, I mean. Well, I said good thing we're going west. It'll be okay, okay? Luke nodded. We can stop anytime and go back, okay? He nodded again. All right, let's go. Should get there way early in the morning, but we'll see the sunset, so that's something, eh? Luke didn't respond. I pulled out of the gas station, wary, but not too worried. People can be crazy. People can be jerks. People can be evil. That was our second mistake. We drove that way for the next hour in silence. The only time Luke spoke was to ask if we could turn the music off, and that made the ride so much spookier. Just driving in silence, through the bleak nothingness of the desert, without stars, without much light. I asked Luke if he was okay a few times, and every time he just nodded. About an hour after leaving Carlin, Luke spoke up again. I have to piss, he said. I glanced over at him, sighed reluctantly, and replied, yeah, me too. I drank a lot of caffeine. Should we pull over? Luke tried to hide his fear in his voice, but it was there. Uh, I don't know. Your phone working? He checked it. No service. Is yours? Nah. Well, the map says there's a station like an hour away, he said, folding the map over and leaning closer to it. I can just hold it, I guess. Uh, I looked in the rearview mirror and around us. We were just completely alone. No lights, no signs of civilization, just an open expanse of desert and a moody, dark sky. I think it'll be okay if we stopped. We should make it quick, though. Luke looked around, too. He looked worried, but he said rather bravely, Yeah, I think it'll be okay. This was our third mistake. And you know what they say, ladies and gentlemen. Three strikes, you're out. I slowed the Wrangler to a stop, pulled over into the desert shoulder, and killed the engine, leaving the keys in the ignition. I left the headlights and hazards on, too, just in case. Being a woman, 
surprise, I'm a chick. I wanted to get out farther in the field to do my thing. I didn't want Luke to see me or hear me. I found a good spot across the road, a small hill, and crouched down behind some shrubbery. Luke had gone off the side of the road we'd pulled off on, out of my eyesight. It happened so fast. I was doing my thing when I heard this weird, inhumane laughter, and then the engine of the Wrangler. I pulled my shorts up and ran back towards the road. I could see the headlights rapidly disappearing into the night, leaving me in almost pitch blackness. It drove a maybe a little more than 50 feet, then jerked to a stop. I ran towards it, screaming, Luke, you asshole, what the fuck? And then, whistling, coming from the left of me. It didn't sound like a bird call. Three notes, high, low, in between. I spun around, but I couldn't see shit through the darkness. I decided to ignore it and continued towards the jeep. Luke, this isn't fucking funny. The engine revved and it burned rubber before taking off again, this time pulling a sharp left, crossing the median, and disappearing into the desert. One second it was there, the next both the headlights and sound of the engine just poof, vanished. And then I heard him. Luke. He was screaming. Leah! Leah! Oh god! His voice suddenly stopped. The silence was so loud it stung. I was crying by this point standing in the middle of the road staring at the direction the car had gone. There was another whistle, high, low, in between, and then another bark of inhumane demonic laughter. It sounded close. I stared into the darkness, tears blurring my vision, trying to see what had made it when I heard a rumbling sound behind me. An engine. One single headlight was coming directly at me, and I stood frozen like some dumb prey in the middle of the road, before taking off into the desert hoping to lose whoever it was. I wasn't thinking. I was scared. I thought I was going to die. Whoever was following me was also yelling at me, telling me to stop or slow down. I can't quite remember. The engine and light both grew in intensity until I realized that running was futile and turned around to face my pursuer. It was a man on a motorcycle. He was wearing all black, helmet, gloves, pants, shirt, jacket, boots. He stopped a few yards behind me, kicked the stand out, and killed the engine. Swiftly, he pulled off his helmet and started walking towards me leaving the one motorcycle headlight on. It lit up a circle of desert around us and cast him in deep shadow. A brighter, smaller light flashed into my face, and I realized he was holding up a flashlight. Hey, you okay? He said. I didn't respond, and he continued walking towards me. Saw you running down the road. Didn't mean to scare you. Do you need help? Hey, he said softer, now within arm's reach. Are you okay? What are you doing out here alone? Your car break down? I didn't see one around. How long have you been out here? He lowered the light from my face and I saw him a little more clear. Middle-aged, with colored hair, trim. I took a few steps back then said, please don't hurt me. A mix of emotions crossed his face. Shock, pity, sadness, a dash of curiosity. He suddenly reached for something in his back pocket. I cringed backwards and whimpered a bit. He saw this, slowly removed his hand, and then held them both up. A gesture that said, I'm not dangerous. Hey, I'm not gonna hurt you, okay? just going to reach into my pocket for my ID. I blinked at him. There wasn't much I could do to protect myself except run, so I did. Behind me, I heard the man mutter something like, God damn it, before giving chase. I was fast, but he was faster. And I soon felt his hand close around my upper arm and spin me around to face him. He quickly grabbed my other arm too and clamped me down, holding me in place. He was strong. I screamed bloody murder. He shook me a little and said, Hey, hey, calm down, okay? I'm not here to hurt you. I'm a federal agent. I'm going to show you my ID. 
He spoke calmly and slow, released one of my arms, and reached back again. I used this as an opportunity to punch him as hard as I could in the face with my free hand. The grip of his other hand didn't budge. Instead, he just flinched, said ow, and held up something thin and rectangular. It was an ID. said FBI in big blue caps at the top of it. A photo of his face, unsmiling, was underneath it along with his name and a string of numbers. It looked faked, and I was worried, so I stared him straight in the eyes and said, Do you have a badge? He nodded. Sure do, in my jacket pocket. Hurts to sit on. He gestured with his head back to the direction of the motorcycle. If I release you, you gonna take off? I didn't respond, he sighed. Okay, just don't sock me again. God damn. He inhaled deeply, then let me go. I didn't move. He gave me a small smile, exhaled, and then slowly reached into his jacket. It fluttered open for a moment, and I saw a gun strapped into a shoulder holster. He noticed that I noticed, but said nothing and didn't reach for it. Instead, he held out his badge for me to inspect. A semester ago, I learned how to recognize a fake badge from a real one. His was solid gold, with the words Federal Bureau of Investigation engraved on it rather than just the acronym. Lady Justice, blind, holding up a scale and a torch, was embossed in the center. On either side of her were the letters U and S. At the bottom of the badge were the words Department of Justice, and at the top was an eagle. It was indeed authentic, but the thing that made me believe him more than anything else was the fact that he didn't hand it over to me. No federal agent would ever hand their badge over willingly. Just like that, I trusted him, and I started to scream cry about everything that happened that night. Hey, hey, the agent said calmly, placing a hand on my shoulder. No one's going to hurt you while I'm here. Take a deep breath, okay? I'm here to help. We'll figure this out. I'm going to call for backup, and then we're going to go back to the road and wait, okay? I'll shoot several holes into anyone who tries anything. I'm a pretty good shot. He flashed the light around us briefly, and I gotta give him credit. He didn't look the least bit scared, or, if he was, he wasn't showing it. I appreciated that. He slid out a slim black phone from his jacket, called into the nearest city, gave his location, ID number, and name, then explained that he couldn't give escort back into town since he only had one helmet. Nevada law requires all motorcycle riders to wear helmets. He hung up, turned to me, and said, Come on, let's go. You can tell me everything. They're on their way. It's going to be okay. He handed me the flashlight, kicked his stand up, and started pushing his bike back towards the road, while I followed close behind. As we walked, I talked, and he kept an eye on our surroundings. As soon as we got back to the road, he pulled some flares out of his bike saddlebags and set them up a few feet behind us, giving the area a sinister red glow. He hadn't said a word while I spoke, just listened and nodded and looked around, wary. What were you doing out in the desert alone, I suddenly asked, unable to stop myself. The agent glanced at me, then looked back into the darkened desert, investigating. Investigating what? The agent sighed. Look, whatever happened to your brother, we'll find him. I know I can't say much to make things any better or easier, but I'm going to do my damnest to figure out what's going on. We'll find him. I stifled, but said nothing. He glanced at me again and said, tell me about Luke. What's his favorite food? Band. Book. So I told him, and soon flashing lights appeared on the horizon, framed by the first light of the rising sun. I was given an escort back into town inside a police car, where I gave my statement and called my dad. The agent who found me decided to stay back and search around. He told the cops he wouldn't need backup, but if they didn't hear from him by the end of the day, to send another patrol out. Back in town, the cops I spoke to thought my brother just ran away dismissing and belittling his depression, saying that he probably just wanted some attention and took the car for a joyride. But the worst thing was, they laughed. Like they thought it was just all some big joke. Like they thought depression was some big joke. 
The agent returned a few hours later with a car instead of a motorcycle and offered to drive me to the Wickema Municipal Airport. I accepted. He was really the only person there I trusted, the only person there who I felt believed me. I told him what happened, what the cops did and said. He sighed, shook his head, and muttered, assholes. He glanced at me sharply and continued, uh, don't tell anyone I said that, or if you do, just don't use my name. And despite the situation, despite everything that had happened, I smiled, and he threw me a ruggish grin. I noticed he was developing a bruise from where I punched him. After a few minutes, he spoke up again. For what it's worth, I believe you. Everything you've said. About the guy who threatened your brother, about the laughter and the whistling, about your brother's depression, all of it. I'm on your side, and I'll do everything within my power to find Luke. I thanked him, then added, sorry for that, uh, sorry for punching you. He shrugged it off and said, hey, no sweat. You got one hell of a left hook. You should be proud. Before he left, he gave me his card. It was matte black with glossy black writing on it. Said the number on it was his own personal one and that I could call him anytime, even if it was just a talk. He told me to leave a message if he didn't answer and he'd get back to me as soon as he possibly could. Dad and I still have hope that Luke is out there somewhere, that he's still alive. I'm still in contact with the FBI agent. He's a real nice guy, real empathetic and sincere, a good listener, but there's something else, a sadness. Some of you might say that this isn't horrific because I was saved by the agent, but the thing is those agents are fighting a losing battle. It's honestly horrifying. See, I did some research when I got home. When I asked the agent what was going on, what happened to Luke, and he just sighed and said we'd find him, well, I don't think he wanted to tell me that they were out there investigating something called a thrill kill. The Federal Bureau of Investigation has been collecting and compiling information on these thrill kills for decades. And if this experience doesn't deter you, if you're still planning on driving at night through desolate stretches of any interstate, here's some advice. Never let the gas tank get past half empty. Carry emergency flares and flashlights, a spare tire, a jack, and all the necessary tools. A backup phone battery and charger, perhaps mace, a knife, or a taser, or a gun if you're damn careful with it and are legally allowed to carry. Make sure you tell people where you are and where you be in the event if you lose phone signal. And never, ever stop to help anyone stopped on the side or in the middle of the road. Call the police as soon as possible, give your location, and keep going if you can. If you can, turn around, don't look back, and don't stop until you get to a city. Over the past three decades, there have been hundreds of mysterious disappearances and deaths along the stretch of I-80, mostly in the Utah, California, and Nevada area. In some cases, human remains have been found, sometimes burned beyond recognition. Other murders were committed along the interstate years ago. In July 1972, a nude woman in her early 20s was found murdered and posed in a cross-like manner. She had been shot by a 22 caliber gun. Then, on November 16, 1993, an unidentified woman was found at the Shafter exit 387. The nude body had been beaten, shot with a small caliber gun, and posed in a cross-like manner as well. Both of these murders remained unsolved. These disappearances have led some people, including law enforcement officers, to guess that perhaps a killer or killers who are working as long-haul truckers might be prowling desolate I-80 and committing thrill kills. Because of the large number of disappearances and deaths, the FBI has created a task force dedicated to investigating I-80 cases. And that is the murder and conspiracies of the I-80 freeway or interstate, whatever you want to call it. Same thing, right? I don't really know. Holy moly, guys.
that is just terrifying like I don't know I'm like kind of shaking and the fact that I drove on there I have to say I have big cojones first of all um also being very safe always driving in the day as soon as it's starting to get dark right away find a hotel I usually grab food and just stay in the room all day all night and then I leave early in the morning so I can drive as far as I can I try to you know look up the safest places even though don't really know how accurate that is but always take precautions because you never know you literally never know that's that's just today's episode i hope you enjoyed and remember to trust no one and question everything and i'll see you here next week